0: So today's Bible reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 14, and it reads, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherd of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. As God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest, gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders. All of you close yourselves with humility towards one another. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humbles. Humbles yourself before under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowl around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because You know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, cho- chosen together with you, sent her greeting, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. All right, now it's time for the sermon, and I would like to invite Robin John to come up and uh, give us today's message.
1: Thanks, Steve. Uh, (laughs) So uh, a little bit uh, unprepared today. So if you thought the uh, announcements didn't make sense, wait till you hear the sermon. I'm joking, it's not that bad. It it does make sense, but uh, you might need to put in a bit of work. So ask me questions at the end if something's not clear. It's mostly there, but uh, we'll have to work together today. Um, so let me pray, and then we'll we'll get into it. Father, thank you for uh, your word to us in one Peter. Thank you that you speak to us and reveal things to us uh, that are to some degree beyond our comprehension. So help us with the Spirit today to be able to understand what you're saying, um, and help us to live lives that make sense um, in the way that you run the world. Uh, and help us, Lord, to uh, be humble and to follow you. Amen. All right, so we're at the end of One Peter now. Um, And one of the things that I've enjoyed most about it is that um, it's just surprised me over and over again. So Peter says things that sound like you've heard them before, but then when you dig into it, you realise he's saying something really different, and it's a new perspective on things that um, you might not have thought or have seen. Uh, So I hope you've enjoyed it too for... Uh, maybe that reason or for some other reason. But now at the end of the book, I want you guys to cast your minds all the way back to the beginning of the book, Chapter 1. So that's eight weeks now, which is quite some time. But if you remember, Peter started off the letter looking at the Christian level, at a the Christian life, at a really high level. Um, and what we said was it was immense and it was glorious. We saw that we were exiles in the world but we'd been born into a living hope and we had an imperishable inheritance coming our way and we were guarded until we received it. So it's a pretty enticing picture of the Christian life. And I hope it made you want to go on that journey of the Christian life and follow Jesus. But you'd be forgiven for for forgetting that he said any of that because after that, All he seemed to talk about was suffering and submitting and serving. So you might feel like you've kind of bought into a bait and switch. And you might actually feel like that as like a microcosm of the bigger Christian life. Come to Jesus and your sins are forgiven and follow him and you'll be sons and daughters of God. But then maybe five or ten years down the track, you look back and you realise it's actually been really hard and there's been a lot required of you fighting sin was hard, sacrificing was hard, serving was hard, all of it was hard. So who wouldn't want the things that were promised in Chapter 1, the glory that was promised in Chapter 1? But then in Chapter 2, he started to introduce some hard things alongside the glory. And then in Chapter 3 and 4, it was pretty much all suffering and submission. So in Chapter 5, at the end of his letter, We're asking, where was the promise of chapter one? Where did that go? There's a hint of it in verse one where he talks about the glory that we'll all share in. But what he ends up doing is continuing on this idea of suffering from the week before, from last week, where he said judgment begins with the living stones that are being made into God's house. Judgment begins with God's house. So the unfair persecution that comes from the world is actually God's own judgment on his own people. And that's to separate those who are really his people from those who aren't really his people. And now he takes that thought a bit further and he says to the elders of the church, be shepherds of God's people and care for them and lead them through this judgment, this really hard time. And he calls them to shepherd in a particular way. Firstly, not to um, be forced into it, but to do it willingly. So we can be forced into doing good things, which um, I'm not sure if if that's 100% bad, but it's definitely not optimal. And it's not the image of shepherd that God has in mind. So he wants the willing shepherd. Then secondly, he wants a shepherd that's not selfish, that's not pursuing their own gain, but, but is eager. And so that's another inter- another interesting insight. It's possible for us to want to serve, but to want to serve for selfish reasons. But God says to the elders, you need to be willingly willing to serve for unselfish reasons. And then thirdly, to not shepherd by wielding your power oppressively, because there's implicit power with the elders, I suppose, but by caring for people and being an example. And so it's pretty clear that Peter is calling them to shepherd in the way that Jesus shepherds. That's the particular shepherd that we're meant to be like, the chief shepherd. So while Jesus is gone in this time of suffering, you elders should be something like Jesus and you should serve the people of God like he did. So that's a pretty big call. There's a lot of weight on that. But there's a little hint of glory in verse 4. You'll receive an unfading crown at Jesus' return. But then he moves on quickly. He's not about the glory. Now he's talking to the younger ones, verse 5. Again, we return to the idea of submission again, which has been a big theme in Peter. It's the same instruction he gave people to authorities, to, to submit to authorities, and the same instructions for slaves to masters, husbands to wives. He now gives younger people to elders. And so it's just one short sentence, submit to your elders, but it's another hard task because it's it's never really easy to submit. But when you combine it with the instructions to the elders, you see the idea is that um, the elders care for the young ones uh, with some degree of, of authority, but then the younger ones willingly are being cared for and not rebelling. Um, So that's the picture. And it doesn't mean um, older in age necessarily because the elders are obviously the leaders of the church. Um, But what if you became a Christian later in life? You wouldn't be able to care for others in the way that Peter's expecting you to be, and you wouldn't be able to be an example of Jesus in the way that Peter's expecting you to be. So it's probably referring to, to those who are older and more mature in the faith. But also that maturity does come with age. The longer you've been a Christian, the more the spirit works in you and the more mature you become, at least in a general sense. And so in Peter's picture, there's an implication that as you age and as you mature, so you also age and mature as a Christian and so you should be taking on responsibility of caring for the younger ones. And That's kind of just a mirror of natural life, right? The older looks after the younger. Um, And to the younger ones, you should naturally listen to the older. So there's the instructions to serve and submit again. And it's a beautiful pattern, actually. Um, And there's little specks of glory in it, like kind of hints at glory. But really, it's just another instruction to serve and submit. So where is the promise of chapter 1? Where's the promise of all that glory that he talked about in chapter 1? Verse 5 continues with even more instructions. Now to everyone, all of you, clothe yourselves in humility towards one another because Peter now reveals another insight into how God runs the world. God lifts up the humble and he brings down the arrogant. And this one fact makes sense of everything he says in the letter, and it explains where the promise of Chapter 1 has gone. He's promised us glory, but he's told us to submit ourselves over and over again, submit to authorities in the wider world, submit to masters, submit in the home, submit in the church now. And even those in positions of authority, You don't get to just use your authority for your own benefit, like we just heard, right? You use it for the benefit of others. But if it's God's nature to oppose the proud, the ones who wrongly refuse to submit, um, I say wrongly because we've kind of talked about situations where it might be right to not submit um, when it contradicts God's higher authority, um, or to oppose those who. submit but do it with grumbling, or maybe those who wield authority um, in a selfish way, if it's God's nature to oppose those proud people but to show favour to the humble, to the ones who submit gracefully and willingly and use authority selflessly, then verse 6 is the most obvious thing to do. If this is truly how God operates, um The way you should live your life then is to humble yourselves. And it does seem to be true. Look at the stories of the Old Testament. The people who God blesses, they might be flawed, they might be sinful like King David, but if they're humble, God will lift them up. And the peak example of humility is, of course, Jesus, who was deserving of honour but gave it all up for the sake of others. And so... Because he was the peak of humility, he became the peak example of being lifted up as well. In Chapter 3, we're told he's now sitting at the right hand of God, the single most glorious place in all of creation, no higher honour, and even the angels and the powers and the authorities are all now submitted to him. No higher honour in the world, and it was given to Jesus because it's God's nature to lift up those who are humble. So. What Peter is saying, what Peter was saying when he said things like "bear up with unjust suffering, so that brings about grace," love one another, don't pay in, don't pay back insults with insults, submit to the world, to the home, in the home, in the church, rejoice in uh, all your fiery ordeals. When he was saying all of that, he was saying, like Jesus, the living stone, was humble and submitted and served and suffered willingly without grumbling, all those sorts of things, be like living stones and be humble and live in the same way because if you're like him in his humility and in his suffering, God will lift you up. And he says, look at how high Jesus has been lifted up because of his humility. If you're like him, you'll be raised up like him. So be humble. But it's not as easy as it sounds. Verse seven, it sounds like, um, verse seven is another command this time to cast your worries on God. Uh, but I don't think it's, it's quite another command in the original language. There's, there's a little hint that it might be the result of the command to humble yourself. <clears throat> so humbling yourself isn't easy by any stretch of the imagination. Um, even if. Even if just once in your life you've held your tongue instead of going off at someone who deserved it, you know it's not easy to be humble. But the, in the act of humbling yourself, you might even bring upon yourself extra pain and extra anxiety and add to the anxieties that already exist in your life. A slave, for example, we've been talking about slaves a lot. A slave, for example, is already anxious about food to eat for the day or whatever. And on top of that, submitting to a harsh master adds extra anxieties and it might be more than he's able to bear. And what's true of the slave is true for us too, right? Life has enough anxieties. Living God's way is probably going to add more anxiety to us. I think Peter knows that, and God for sure knows that. But in the act of humbling yourself, you also have the benefit of casting your anxieties on God. So as you live in his way, you're able to leave every anxiety to him because the things that worry you, it says, are intrinsically a worry to God. If you remember uh previously as well, Peter told us that God's ears are open to the righteous. They're open to the ones that live in his ways, but his face is his face is turned against um, those who oppose him. So as you live a humble life, you can tell God this is these are the worries of my heart. And he'll listen. And I think it implies he'll take care of it. So that's where the promise of glory from chapter 1 has gone. It seems like we were duped. We were promised glory but got suffering. But actually what Peter's saying is the path to glory is the path of suffering, which is the path that Jesus walked down. But verse 8, it's not only the path of suffering, it's also the path of danger. So be alert. Because the devil is a lion looking for its prey. As we've gone through Peter, we've been saying, submit, submit to governments, submit to slave masters, husbands, elders. And so we might think our enemy then is unfair governments, unfair masters, and so on. But actually, the enemy that Peter sees is the devil. And this warning seems to come out of left field because he hasn't mentioned the devil up until now. But now it seems at the end of the letter, the devil's the biggest enemy. But in what way? We might immediately assume that the threat of the devil is that he sends fiery ordeals um, like the ones we heard about last week, unjust suffering, pressure and persecution from the world. But actually, Peter's already clarified that, if you're a Christian, uh, it's actually God that sends that type of suffering. So what are we watching out for from the devil? Verse 9, it says, we watch out by standing firm in the faith. So I think what we're watching out for is that we don't respond wrongly or unfaithfully in all these different situations that Peter says is coming out way. In unjust suffering, we don't uh, rebel or lash out, but we bear with the unjust suffering as much as we can. Um, in the situation of evil being given to us, we don't return evil, but instead we return good. So there's an interesting contrast to resisting the devil, but not resisting the suffering that comes our way. And that's a pretty hard balance to, to walk down, a pretty hard balance to meet. In the words of today's uh, passage, we would probably say in all situations, we need to watch out that we respond with humility and not with pride. So that's how Peter understands the true nature of the hostility and the problems that are facing us as followers of Jesus. So the devil doesn't attack by sending trials, which is what we might expect. The devil attacks us by causing us to stray from our faith, by making being like the world more attractive than being like the living stone. So he reminds us that this temptation isn't unique to us only, but it's common to all believers in all of the world. The ones that look like they're holy and killing it on the outside and also the ones that are clearly struggling, both parties are facing this same struggle with the devil. And I think Peter intends that solidarity in that struggle to give us more perseverance against the devil, because we're not fighting the devil alone. It might look like one person is doing better than another, but we're all struggling. So the promise of glory then that Peter's given us is through the path of humility, but it's a dangerous path. So the question at the end of his letter has to be, is it worth it? Is the immense glory that was promised at the start worth the pain and the unjust suffering and everything else that will come? Is that worth it? So verse 10 is Peter's answer. He says that God is the God of all grace. So throughout the letter, we've seen how Peter views um, grace as coming from God. In chapter 4, he says uh, God gives us all these unique gifts and he gives them to us as grace for others, to help and support others. And chapter 2 and 3, he told us that the natural way that God works things out is to bring about grace, even in unjust suffering. And now he says, yes. The humble and dangerous path to glory is worth it because here is one more grace that God gives. Verse 10, after suffering for a little while, you'll be restored. And when he says a little while, I don't think he means you'll only suffer like a short amount. I guess suffering is probably a pretty relative thing. So someone might look at your suffering and not think much of it because they're able to bear up under a lot more suffering. Um, But to you, this amount of suffering might be all you can bear. It's taking you to your limit. So when Peter says a little while of suffering, to you that little while of suffering might feel like an eternity. So he's not really comparing um, your suffering or what you'll go through with what someone else goes through or what he himself goes through. Um, He's comparing it, I think, to the amount of of glory that is to come at the end of the suffering. In that light, whatever you're going through now is only a little and is only for a little while, even if it's pushing you to your limits. He says make it through because at the end you will feel little, ultimately. And more than that, more than that, there's this extra grace Jesus will mend you, which is an important message for us to hear, I think, at different times in our lives. Because at some point in our lives, if not already, the Christian life will not seem worth it. The things that you have to put up with as a Christian, things that you have to give up will just not seem like it's worth it. These things that come as suffering because you're following Jesus, they might be overwhelming and they might leave your you and leave your life or your body or your soul in ruins. And you might walk away with it with scars that never heal. But Peter says they will be healed and Jesus himself will mend them and he'll make you stronger than before. He's saying your faith will never shake again. Now, I don't know when exactly he means that will come. So, like, is that you get strengthened and healed as you resist the devil continually, or is it um, you get strengthened and healed at the end of all these trials? I'm not really sure. Um, but what he's saying is no matter how scarred your life is, there's this wonderful promise that Jesus will heal and there's, there's these scars that we carry for our whole lives. So if you're, by the time you're like 20, 25, if you're lucky, I guess, you've probably already picked up a few of those scars where someone brings up that memory and something twinges in your stomach and it kind of twists and those scars that kind of still hurt after a long time. And what Peter's saying here is that as you go through the Christian life, the Christian life will probably bring on pain that will leave those types of scars, scars that never heal, scars that when someone brings up, you're just twisted inside. But the promise is that they'll be undone and they'll be mended by Jesus. So you trade really painful but temporary scars for an unfading crown of glory. And that's what Peter says was his purpose in verse 12. He's only written a few brief words, he says, but all of it is to encourage and to testify to the true grace of God. That God's grace in his working of the world comes in unexpected ways, as we've kind of seen throughout 1 Peter. So the Christian life isn't smooth sailing when you start to follow Jesus. Um, If anything, it's just rough seas. But it's the rough seas that are the grace of God by the way God works in the world, the rough things, the suffering, the persecution, all of that ends in grace. And all of that ultimately ends in glory, firstly for Jesus, but also for you. So we started off 1 Peter at a really high level, thinking about how immense and glorious it is to be the people of God, born into a living hope, inheritors of an unfading inheritance. Um, But then we ended up in the dirt talking about suffering and submission and endurance and lots of things that we would find unpleasant. And the truth of God's grace that Peter's revealed to us is that the view at the top and the view at the bottom, although they seem opposed, are actually one and the same. The workings of God that Peter's uh, described to us are just so counterintuitive that it doesn't seem like they could be the same. But if it's true, if suffering unjustly and being conscious of God brings about grace, and if it's true that God brings down the humble, uh, brings down the proud and raises the humble, then all those hard parts, all the suffering is in itself actually grace and it brings about grace. So the whole Christian life, all of it, while it's hard, while it's marked by submission, which might be a really unpleasant thing, while it's marked by needing to be selfless, which might also be an unpleasant thing, it's actually totally filled with grace and it ends in glory. So Peter says to us at the end of his letter, persevere in it. Keep following Jesus. Resist the devil. And humble yourselves so that in time, God will lift you up. Let's pray. Um, Help us to uh, really trust in your word. Help us to trust that what you say is true and that by living your way, we actually um, are preparing ourselves or walking towards glory. We pray that um, we would trust you and we would actually follow your path um, so that, like Jesus, you would lift us up. Help us to, um, throughout our lives, especially when it seems uh, easy to give up, help us to persevere. Help us to call each other to persevere as well um, so that in the end we might all receive your glory. Amen.
0: And it is time for the Q and A, and i got get warmed up now. Okay, I think we got a couple up there on the Padlet. But before we jump into that, uh,
1: does anybody have a question? like to? Yeah, sure. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> oh
0: yeah,
1: I I uh, didn't I didn't touch on uh didn't touch on that stuff. But so most likely, um. I, so it's possible that it's like a lady in... Okay, so two things. Uh, if you remember back to um, Revelation, when it talks about Babylon, uh, it uses it in two senses. Like one, it's kind of like a, uh, I don't know, code name for Rome. And in another way, it's kind of the symbol of like God's uh, enemy sort of thing. So when you come when it comes to Peter, he kind of uses it in symbol, similar ways, most likely. Uh On one hand, it could be just the codename for Rome, and at the same time, it could be um, kind of a, instead of saying Rome, it's kind of saying symbolically, we're all in exile. So I think it's a connection back to, um, the the Babylon part is a connection back to um, us being exiles in the world. So it's like, um, she who is in Babylon is also exiled with you. So she's also in exile. Okay, so who's the she? The she could possibly be um, just a lady in um, in Rome who's saying hi, who's also in exile. Uh, most likely, it's she as in the church. So the word uh, church in Greek is feminine, so it's a she. So the the, sh- the she kind of implies the church or the the fellowship of brothers and sisters, which is also feminine in Greek. Um, so yeah, most likely the church, possibly just. A random lady, but probably not. Yeah. Okay. And- oh, uh, there's, there's also another theory that says, um, oh, uh, it could be Peter's wife because he mentions Mark, his son, uh, but the the son part's probably metaphorical, so it's uh, 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 that's also unlikely. Probably the church. <laughs> okay.
0: Uh, anybody else have uh, any question? First question: What are the boundaries
1: of humility? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, good question always it 's always hard to know, and I think that the boundaries are different for different people uh, so uh, what I was kind of hinting at in the uh, sermon was that um, like one person might be able to bear up with a lot of suffering and one person might be able to only bear with a little at different times in your lives you might be able to bear up with a lot of suffering and at different times you maybe can only bear with a little um, so we can't expect ourselves or we shouldn't expect ourselves to bear up with suffering to the extent that Jesus did, Um, because Jesus is Jesus, Jesus is God and human. Um, And though we're trying to be like him, we're not actually him. Um, So the assumption is that at some point we reach our limit. And the thing for you to work out is, are you at your limit or are you actually just not wanting to live in God's way when you're in this suffering. So if someone like, I don't know, something small, someone cuts you off in traffic, are you kind of at your limit at that point and then just going nuts? <laughs> or are you at that point just saying, nah, it feels better to go nuts at this person? And, yeah, for, for little things like that, it's probably mostly the the I can't remember which I said first, but the one that's not good. Um, and then, when it comes to bigger things like the the decision's a little bit harder um but it's kind of for you to wrestle with uh in in working with god 's spirit like where 's that line like where can you actually what 's going to break you and what 's just going to? what and what is you just not really wanting to walk in god 's ways it's hard to tell it's really hard to tell um so while the boundaries no flat boundaries but um Boundaries that you need to in wisdom, so you can talk to other people if you're talking about a specific situation, talk to them, work it out, talk to me, I'd love to hear about it. Um, yeah. Think- Good question, hard question, always.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. So, like, same, depending depending on the day and depending on what Vanessa's saying in the car, let's just have some work, right? <laughs> True. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Which doesn't <a> yeah? <laughs> matter. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, no, of uh, in light of ch- uh, topic five, what are your thoughts on church leaders? of mega churches. who on mention, the luxury, etc. Mm off the back of the Christian faith
1: itself and that's the imagination and people. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm guessing that maybe that's coming from the perspective of, you know, like God raises up the uh, humble but brings down the crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh yeah there's a lot to say there. So being rich doesn't necessarily equal being proud, yeah. um, so God, God definitely blesses Christians with riches, and lots of Christians use their riches really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it is hard to be humble when you're rich because there's just a lot of um, uh, like there's a lot of respect and and stuff that comes from the world at that point. So it's hard yeah. to be humble in that situation, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily bad for um, a person, a Christian. Uh, even the church minister, I suppose, of a mega church, to be paid a lot, uh, that's not a bad thing. Like maybe they're working really hard, maybe they're benefiting a lot of people, and so they should be paid. Um, the the thing I think to watch out for is just more the how you use your riches. So if, like at that point, if you're like a multimillionaire and mm. you're using that in selfish ways and in ways that kind of um, uh, are not... They're, they're building up your pride as opposed to expressing humility. Then that's the point where um, it would be something for it would be a warning to that person. Because at that point, if you're proud and if you're on top of the world, the message of one Peter is that God's going to bring you down. So the higher you go, the prouder you are, all of that, it's like the more danger you're in of being brought down. And so for the poor person who um, has little. Um, and who may never have much, um, it's a bit easier for them to be humble. So you you can be a a poor and proud person as well, Mm -hmm. but it's a bit easier for the poor person to be humble. Uh, And so it's a kind of um, encouragement to that person because like, in your humility, in your uh, humble circumstances, which make it easier for you to be humble, Mm -hmm. God will lift you up. And that's just the way he works in the world. People that are high up and proud, he brings down people that are low, he'll bring up. So um yeah, thoughts on mega church leaders who own mansions and stuff. Um if if one of them happens to be listening to me, I would be I would say, just be careful. Don't don't become proud. Yeah. Don't use your wealth in mm-hmm. um proud ways, uh, but stay humble and God will continue to lift you up. He might make you richer and richer.
0: Yeah. I think I think it for us, uh, in general sense, like we can we tend to judge them more because of the fact that when you see other people, other millionaires who's a non-believer, who's you know usually constantly donating millions and millions to charity, yeah. and then when you can look at you know like church leaders, uh, you know who leads the mega churches, who okay. leads to mention not contributing anything to the community, and yeah, that's yeah. What people tend to. Yep. Is that
1: yeah. And, backside, so yeah. And yeah. 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 It's kind of it's kind of hard to judge from a distance. Like if you were in their circles, like if you were friends with them, mm. you would know a lot better if they're a proud person or if they're a humble person.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, looking from far away, probably by default, it looks like they're not very humble, but they could be. They could actually be really humble. Mm. Like, yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, we go to the
0: next one uh, in verse twelve. It says that they, they are testifying
1: the true grace of God, mm. where there are those false teachings or rumours about God at that time. Uh, um, I mean, there were, yeah, there were lots of heresies all throughout church history, so that I'm sure there were false teachings. Mm. I think what Peter means here, though, by the true grace of God is um, kind of in comparison to the... Maybe, what we would imagine god's grace to be, so we imagine that you know follow God, become rich, get that inheritance now, imagine. live that glorious life now, but the true grace of God he's saying comes in the way that it came for Jesus, where like suffering, humility, yeah. um all of that leads to glory in the end mm-hmm. uh, so i think it's it's not so much as as opposed to heresy but as opposed to what we imagine grace looks like. Yeah. versus the true grace that God gives us comes in a really unexpected form. Mm. Yeah. Good question. Good
0: question, yeah. yeah. Uh, next one is, how can we recognise the
1: devil in order to it? <laughs> uh, Oh, man, good question. Okay. Um, let me plug our next sermon series, which is uh, on the spiritual world. So we have, we'll have a little break um, with some... Uh, Preacher's choice and then we 'll do like four or five weeks on spiritual world we 'll talk about stuff like this yeah. from for right now. how can I recognize the devil in order to resist him? Um, I think peter 's picture of the devil mm-hmm. is that he's actually he's operating very slyly in our um, in in the temptation to uh live in a in a proud way. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that that might be how Peter says you recognize the devil. Um yep. you recognize him when you're tempted to be proud, when you're tempted to do the selfish thing, all those sorts of things. Um no doubt the devil works in other ways, mm. more kind of active kind of antagonistic ways and we'll kind of be thinking about that later on. Mm. But I think in Peter's mind the real danger of the devil and the real danger to the church and the Christian <clears throat> is that we're tempted to not be like God. And we're tempted to respond in ungodly ways, uh, and so give up our faith eventually. Right, I think man. that's the that's Peter's picture of the devil's work.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, I think somebody's
1: posted up a video on YouTube that you can. Uh, oh uh, yeah, have a read. Have yeah. a. I, I have no idea what that is, but yeah, have a watch and see what you guys think.
0: Yeah, it's a should bridge so, uh, Christian down with the Baptizing with the previous question. Mm. Um, and uh, again, yeah, I just need to know. The first QA answers remind me of this Bible verse. Mm. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful, He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Mm. Yeah. But when you but well, when you are tempted, it, it will also provide a way out so that you can enjoy
1: it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, there's there's a lot of overlapping kind of themes and yeah. thoughts there. Mm-hmm. I'm not hundred percent sure that the temptation there is the same as like the suffering. It could be. Um mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah, there's definitely at least a lot of um in principle like the way that God operates is really yeah, similar yeah. there indeed. Yeah. Tempted, yeah, good. good observation.
0: Okay. That's Um, it. um, That's all we've got today. Cool.
1: Great. Uh, Great Q and A, guys. Thank you.